Sunny 16 presents. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Music and Photography Podcast. I'm Billy Safford, and on this episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Johnny Martyr. Hi, Johnny. How are you? Hey, Billy. Good to hear from you, and um, I really appreciate you reaching out to me. Absolutely. I'm honored that you would consider it, and happy to be speaking with you. I think the first thing that caught my eye probably was some of the candid wedding photos that you share it has a very distinctive style to me. And that's something that a lot of the photography I do, and especially the most important photography I do are candid family moments. And that is a look that I strive to replicate, of course. So I want to talk to you some about that, but maybe to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into photography, maybe uh, some of your studies along the way? Yeah. So I guess the story goes, in high school, I was in this sort of experimental art class. And by that, I don't mean the art we were doing was experimental, but the teacher was sort of testing like sort of this like advanced placement art class that the school didn't have previously. So one of the things that she did with us was take us to museums constantly, which was like not like the, the norm. I don't know if they continued to do this after we left, but it was really enriching and eye-opening and just gave me a sense i guess just you know it sounds silly but just leaving the school grounds fairly frequently and being trusted to walk around even we even went to new york we went to the moma Um, you know and so to see like the things that were in our textbooks in person and in some cases we actually would run into fairly affluent knowledgeable people we even ran into chuck close at um the moma when i was in high school Oh, so where I was going with that is a friend of mine at the time, she came on one of these trips and brought her Pentax K1000. And actually, I always read music magazines growing up. That ties into the music thing. And I loved just the the visuals of it. Like a lot of kids, like I just liked everything that was crazy. I didn't really have any direction to it. But then my friend, you know, she's taking pictures in the galleries and, you know, of us and, you know, looking at paintings and sculptures and this kind of thing and i just thought it was so cool like she's like yeah this camera's from the 70s like you know you have to adjust everything yourself like it doesn't do anything for you and i was i was immediately just that seemed really cool to me and she printed a uh, a shot of me looking at a sculpture the uh, baltimore museum of art i think it was and looking at a sculpture and she explained to me you know because we were in high school so we weren't shooting like it was expensive at the time like 3200 speed film 
she was shooting like probably 400 speed film so she had to you know take a breath and hold the camera and you know get a little shake to it and i just thought that was just so cool you know like i never thought oh your breathing affects like the quality of your photo like, <laughs> like it just right. blew my high school brain out of the water you know and right. that really when i look back i mean i definitely wandered off that path like i shot color for probably the first 10 years of my photography career i felt like it was kind of necessary for professional stuff but just shooting with a fully manual camera all black and white that's where i started i went to college for film and video and basic photography was a requisite for that so that mm -hmm. sort of like dovetailed into my experiences in high school and and then when you're in college for that kind of thing you're working with people you're networking and you and you're just working on projects like that you may or may not actually be qualified for <laughs> and um you end up <laughs> taking jobs people ask you hey can you come i'm shooting a movie can you shoot the production stills hey my band's playing downtown can you come take pictures you know and just you're just in that environment where people are being creative and they have creative projects and you know interesting things going on and you just kind of get sucked into it and i don't have any kind of business background or anything it just always, for me, it was ingrained. I was, you know, more or less a classic broke college student. And I was like, hey, can you give me some money for the cost of my film? You know? <laughs> right. and, and then eventually it was like, hey, I'm going to need a little bit more than that. <laughs> you know, so my, you know, by the time my wife came along, I mean, I'd already been freelancing pretty regularly. But then when she came, it kind of really sweetened the deal for us. And, and the wedding thing got to be a pretty substantial Part of our time and yeah i don't know i mean yeah i think that that's pretty good <laughs> that's a pretty good version of the story right yeah absolutely <laughs> and and i'm glad you mentioned your wife and she is stephanie right yeah stephanie lee we call ourselves martyr and lee photography lee is her middle name and she shoots digital she shoots posed work she handles a lot of our family photo clients um folks that just seasonally want to get photos of their family their kids growing up you know that kind of thing and uh and she's got into sports photography lately which is really fun she's like i think she's really coming into her own on that and it's neat to watch another artist evolve you know that's that's cool and that's um, and so i do black and white 35 millimeter film which i think still surprises some people before i met steph i was shooting well, it was all color and I was having labs do all of my work. And then in um, 2012 with Kodak going bankrupt, that seemed to very quickly affect the quality of the work I was getting from labs. And right. I had literally been to school for film. So it wasn't any problem for me to shift gears into processing my own stuff again. But I just, I was terrified, honestly, because at that point we had been shooting weddings and events and that sort of, you know, local stuff for about a a year or two at that point and i was terrified that people weren't going to accept someone who was like hey i'm not going to shoot in color <laughs> and it's going to take me a few days to get these photos back to you know i didn't think right. that i could sustain myself on that and, I, and that's a question i get a lot from people but a big part of the reason why i can i can do that is because of my wife's work but also i think because i've built a little bit of a reputation for being able to do it you know right and, so yeah, anybody that is thinking about trying to bring their film up to a paid level, and it doesn't have to be a full-time thing, it just be a freelance thing or a casual thing. I think, you know, the physics of photography didn't change in the last 20 years. Right. 
you know, film is still viable. And if you do it well, you can do it. You can pay for your own film. <laughs> so. Right. When you were starting out, did you get any pushback about black and white film or did people buy into it pretty quickly? That's a good question. With weddings, I kind of stumbled into it. I was working for a wedding photographer in Baltimore who's fairly prominent. And he taught me a lot of what I know about uh, shooting weddings. And it was the early 2000s. So he was shooting on Fuji FinePix DSLRs with Nikon lenses because Nikon still didn't really have like great DSLRs at the time. We were doing all the candids on those and we were shooting all the formal stuff on Hasselblads. And he was uh, a little bit older than me, but he grew up shooting film also. And so he was just really good at it. And my point is, is that with weddings, people are looking for that timelessness. Right. And not everybody's looking for an all black and white wedding, but some people do. And you'd be surprised, actually. And some people, you know, particularly film photographers, other film photographers love having another film photographer shoot their wedding, which I, I really get excited when another film photographer hires me because I'm like, yes, I can do everything <laughs> my way. But yeah, that, right. was, that was kind of the direction of things. It was the, the specifically for wedding photography, people are cool with the black, the all black and white thing. And because right. I was working with my wife too, if they hire both of us, then they get the color and they get the digital and they get the instant, you know, the, all the photos tomorrow kind of thing. Right. Like, right. You know, they get both of those things that they enjoy. The longevity of the film, the timelessness of the black and white, you know, they get that while still having some of the advantages of the modern stuff. So I think for weddings specifically, I think that really works really well. Other things, yeah, like my wife covers our family photo stuff more so than I am. Sometimes I'm asked to do weddings mm -hmm. without her by myself, all black and white film, but I am never asked to do family portraits <laughs> all by myself, all black and white film. So it's just different markets. Right. So getting back to Stephanie, that was something that I wanted to ask about having a creative partner, you know, a lot of us who do photography as a hobby, it, you know, we have very understanding partners who either tolerate us or they're very supportive of us, but it's just not their thing. <laughs> but you are fortunate enough to have her who is also, you know, a talented photographer. The two of you can have this business together. And so talk a little bit about both parts of that but on the photography side sort of maybe how you may complement one another and then maybe either running a business together is do you think that's harder than it would be if you weren't married or or easier because <laughs> you are married that's a good question you know honestly we go through periods where both of us are just like we're not going to do this another year <laughs> you know like right. just because you know, we're not business experts by any means. I'm sure there's lots of things that I screw up in terms of client communications, uh, scheduling, just the finances of things. You know, there's there's probably lots of things that I, I'm not doing right, but I'm constantly learning and she's constantly learning. And so those things, would it be easier if I was in a in a business environment and it was just, you know, two talented people working together? Yeah, I guess I could see that because that framework is already there. But her and I were just two people that like taking pictures of people that make them feel good about themselves and a valuable part of the world. And, you know, so, so we just, that's what we're passionate about. And so I think that when we do have uh, disagreements about, you know, 
if a client wants X, then I give them Y. And Steph's like, you know, well, why'd you give them Y? Like they told you they wanted, it. you know, it's, and, <laughs> right. and we get into, the, you get into the things that you can only imagine like a husband and wife, I guess, would normally get into about, you know, with third parties involved. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess that stuff is a, a little tenuous. The, like the, the thing that draws us together though, is just that she does good work and I do good work and we both <laughs> care about, we keep both value the same, same things. And right. so that keeps us coming back to it. Honestly, like I do sometimes wonder, <laughs> it, it hurts my ego a little bit, but I do sometimes wonder if I, I could actually even like do this if, if I didn't have her. So, <laughs> because I, it would rationalize the amount of work that I can do. Cause there are certainly people that hire us that don't even care about what I'm doing. It's just that their friends recommend it. Uh, you wouldn't believe how much, you know, non-business because we do business to business photography too. And it's a whole different game. But like when you're just working with the public, like right. you wouldn't believe how many people hire you, not based on the quality of your work or, you know, but purely on friends recommendations. Right. So they, uh, I get, I get people and they're like, oh, I didn't even know you shot black and white film. <laughs> wow. Like, it, it's really crazy, but they just hire us because of word of mouth. And so my, I guess my point in bringing that up is just that, you know, sometimes, yeah, I show up at a shoot and I give them a product that they weren't expecting to like. Some of them, I don't know, maybe, maybe they didn't like it as much as my wife's uh, color digital stuff, but sometimes, you know, turn people onto something different and, and they like it. So that's cool. And I wouldn't get that if we didn't have that diversity, you know, those two different ends of the spectrum. And I do think, you know, there's probably to her side too, the black and white film is an easier target to sort of pick on. <laughs> but I do think like some of my people, you know, the folks that hire me to just show up at their wedding and shoot nothing but candids, all black and white film, those hardcore folks that I, I love to work for. Like right. some of those people, when when they hire both of us, they're like, oh, I didn't realize how much I was going to care about having these like posed smiley color portraits of my family. <laughs> and, you know, because I think when you're in your 20s and you're single, you know, yeah, you might be all hardcore and artistic and like I was right. and have these like, philosophies that you live by and things like that but you know, it is nice to have these like very sharp high resolution you know <laughs> digital portraits of your family years after they maybe they passed or you know just moved away or anything like that because what i'm doing is sort of an artistic rendering of things and what she's doing is kind of a more realistic rendering and i think you know people don't realize they appreciate that realism until sometimes when we get a little bit older and are looking back on stuff. So, right. That's fair enough. It is a challenging environment in, in my mind. Anyway, I should mention in addition to appreciating your photography, I found quickly your, your blog and you're always <laughs> so kind to share a lot of your tips and tricks and insights uh, into photography, into film processing, some gear answering people's questions i mean i highly recommend people checking it out thanks yeah absolutely and so it's a thing you have talked about the challenging environment did it come easy for you was it a lot of trial and error I specifically what i mean is shooting black and white film and venues that may be dark people are dancing there's motion uh, yeah. all of the, all of the challenges to the environment how was your journey in getting the look that does get, you know, people recommending you to their friends and family? 
That's that's a great question, and I you know I I know we're supposed to be talking about uh, music and photography. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I know I, I veered away from that with the wedding stuff, but actually, weddings are a great way probably to pay for your music photography. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because uh, you know I don't know about other folks that are listening, but I you know I I've not found a uh, steady way to uh, make my money back, much less make money off of music photography. But sort of the crossover I think maybe is like I'm shooting these wedding receptions, which are much worse than concerts. Think of like, think of the worst coffee shop, like, you know, five people in the audience kind of like show that you can think of that you've been to where there's like no lights on the performer. Like it's, it's probably like five times worse at some of these wedding receptions that I go to. So yeah, I had to learn. I was like, if I'm going to commit to this, like no flash thing and, you know, grainy film thing, I'm going to have to find a way to do this repeatedly. And that was something I struggled with in the beginning of things. And I cut my teeth on the concert photography in order to learn how to do the wedding photography, actually. So they, they've kind of fed back and forth a bit over the years. But I guess for the first 10 years, approximately, I've been shooting a little bit over 20 that I was shooting color. And if I wasn't shooting color, I was shooting C41. So I was only sh shooting C41 black and white. If I was shooting black and white, rather, I was shooting C41 because I was having labs process stuff. And I liked getting clean images back without any dust on them, use ice and that kind of thing. Right. So pushing color is a pain in the ass. So it was a little bit easier, you know, 10, 15 years ago when we had Fuji Superior 1600. When I lost right. that film, it really killed me. Um, I loved that film. And it really enabled me to, you know, shoot in these dark venues in color and Portra 800 and, you know, uh, Fuji Pro 800. Um, those were all really great films that I was using. And Cinestill still hadn't hit the streets yet. I, I, I was talking with the brothers right before they, you know, found it Cinestill, And, you know, because they were wedding photographers also, and they were doing this hardcore, like, dark lighting kind of stuff without a flash. And so I'd been in communication with them a little bit, and I had explored a little bit of the whole you know, shooting on vision film, Kodak vision film. And I never went that path because I, what I found was that I actually really liked black and white solves a lot of those problems with color and low light. You have color temperature issues, you know, like your lighting is probably tungsten balanced and your film is, is going to be daylight balanced. All those films that I mentioned are daylight balanced. And then when you push them, some people probably are aware of this, but you know, color film, is the color is comprised of dye clouds and the uh, with black and white it's it's the grain so when you push black and white you're basically pushing the whole image to whatever speed you're working in but with color you, it's almost like you're leaving the I, and this isn't a technical explanation but <laughs> obviously um but you're kind of leaving the dye clouds behind when you push right. um you know they're kind of still staying at whatever i i didn't really understand i'm not an expert but you're kind of leaving them behind at the the native iso whereas the you know what you're really pushing is the silver and so i i think something gets lost with that right there are people that do it and they do a good job the brothers right there are definitely people that do that I'm, i've seen some great low light stuff on cinestill but like i said my solution to all this was just obliterate the issue to begin with because for paid work i would need something repeatable and right. so so i went black and white and it's repeatable and predictable. And I got frustrated with color because, you know, I would sit down to edit and I could edit one way and edit another way and I'd still like it, but it's like, well, which one do I choose if I like both of these versions? Right. Whereas with black and white, it's like, it kind of, it points me in a path. 
and I have one way to go and I take that path and I'm always happy with it. You know, years later, I look at photos, I'm still happy with them. With color, I would be like, oh, years later, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to re-edit them and change the color balance again. You know, and it was, it drove me up a wall. Right. But yeah, so I was shooting concerts on color and then I started shooting more black and white for concerts. And then that sort of taught me how to handle the low light circumstances for wedding receptions. Okay. Answer the question? I know that was kind of the end. <laughs> no, it did. Absolutely. And a, and a perfect segue into the music part of it. So talk about some of those early concert experiences. I mean, did you start out like, oh, my buddy is playing at a bar for 10 people? Or yeah. were these uh, like uh, bigger gigs? Or how did, um, how did all that start? Yeah, you? it it hasn't been a straight line like i said when i was in school it was like you knew people that were in bands and so you you went to their shows and you took pictures um right. I, I don't know if that really constitutes as concert photography <laughs> to some degree you know where you're like in this bar and you're like walking on the stage taking pictures you know <laughs> like, right you know this kind of stuff so i i don't know but i mean that was definitely fun like i said i went to school for film and video and so i got connected with a producer for a while and she was a music journalist for pitchfork and so she had connections with a lot of industrial and metal bands and so we would every weekend hit the 930 club and nation in washington dc and we we would videotape these bands uh, with multiple cameras and you know get sound off the soundboard so that was how i cut my teeth so on more professional concert stuff was actually not in photography it was video um, so okay. we were shooting um, Ministry. Um, I met My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, which is a band I've always been into since I was a kid. And, oh, yeah. I, and I photographed them uh, since then, since making that transition back out of the video. Delirium was a cool act that we shot. There was a lot of local bands and uh, Psychic TV was one. Uh, Gary Newman did Car, that's on Cars. Right. A lot of kind of obscure bands too. Uh, Liebach, they were on the Blair Witch soundtrack. It was a lot of cool metal-y industrial bands. That was all video, but it did get me tapped into, like uh, we were talking about before, the etiquette of doing concert photography. Like most of the time you only get privileged to shoot the first three songs. And, you know, like you have right. to have one type of pass to be on the press, to be on one side of the press gate or another type of pass to shoot from a balcony or, and just making those contacts and knowing those people and, you know, learning to negotiate contracts like we would shoot a band and like the bassist was like well i don't i don't agree to this contract you know and we're like standing there with our cameras like well what do we do you know so we you know it's like just dealing with these sorts of, of these things and working in the dark you know like working in the dark is like a big thing for theater technicians and lighting technicians concert techs and you know concert photographers so i think that all was the proven grounds for that as far as photography goes, I parted ways with this producer at one point and focused on photography. And I lost a lot of those connections. So honestly, like a lot of the bands that I've done in recent years that have any kind of reputation are folks that I've, like, like uh, Louise Post, who I shot recently. She was awesome vocalist and writer and guitarist for Veruca Salt. Right. And he just put out an awesome uh, solo album, uh, her first solo album, and I, I loved it. And it turned out, because I, I photographed them years ago, I photographed Farouk Assault years ago. And right. it turned out a buddy of mine who is also a, a Leica photographer is Louise Post's cousin, believe it or not. 
And so he actually, before we knew that she was doing this album, this was a few years back, he put me in touch with her just to send her a photograph from a show that I had photographed before. And, uh, you know, her personal address. So, and I sent her like a, a pick card from my Fender Stratocaster <laughs> autograph. So I was, I was writing more as a fan, but that gave me the ability to, you know, get approved to shoot her, you know, as an approved uh, official thing this, this time around. Because, uh, you know, I think artists like to be surrounded with people who genuinely um, care about what they're doing and they're not just there to, you know, write off their name or anything like that. So that definitely seems to be something that has driven like this relationship uh, with this. Right. But, and I guess where I'm going with that is like larger names that I've shot photographically have been more out of nepotism <laughs> situations <laughs> than they have been um, because I'm, I'm great at concert networking or anything like that. So if anybody's looking for uh, tips on that, unfortunately, I'm not your guy. <laughs> but I, I, can I can talk the tech, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, along those lines, and you mentioned that we had chatted about this a little bit, and, and I have just a very limited knowledge of some of the things. Um, but I, I was wondering if you could give us your insight as a professional photographer, you know, because these are things that would apply to anybody who makes their living through photography. But we know, you know, if you're if you cover entertainment in your local newspaper or whatever, and you get a pass to go to shoot whoever big name coming through town on their tour, like you mentioned, you know, you get to shoot the first three songs. You can't use a flash, which, you know, if you're digital with ISO 100,000 now, maybe that's yeah. not that big of a deal, but that's sort of the old school rule, right? And if the artist isn't particularly uh, interested in having their picture made, you know, they may have poor lighting for those first three songs, or exactly. they may, you know, they're, you know, they're going to be there for their fans. So they're going to play something exciting and upbeat to open with, but they may, songs two and three may not be high energy or, or give you those rock star shots or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and then just even to get in the door, you may have to sign your rights away to the pictures or, or something of that nature. And then, the, you know, it, it's all the challenge of just trying to find good angles and all of these things. I mean, just as a as a professional photographer, kind of what are some of your thoughts about some of the challenges and constraints of, of concert photography in yeah. general. Yeah, I think, you know, concerts seem super fun and easy. I mean, everybody thinks they're fun, right? Because you're you're working with, in some cases, celebrities or at least people whose creativity you appreciate, you appreciate their music. Right. Um, so that, that part's definitely fun. Um, and then I think there, I think sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, like, uh, when I shoot a wedding reception, the the lighting's certainly not professional or dramatic or interesting, <laughs> you know. So um, right. when you shoot a concert, it's cool, especially like a you know a well lit show. Like sometimes I I go for when I shoot local bands, I, you know. Sometimes I just go. I don't even go. That's it's it sounds terrible, but I don't actually even go for the band that's playing. I go where the I know they have a good lighting set and they have a good lighting design, right. um, because we all it seems almost easy because you're getting someone, a professional lighting designer to light for you. So it, it seems easy, but 
it's not. If you stood in the dark, especially with the film camera, trying to, you know, reload it and, you know, change your settings and that kind of thing manually, if you do it that way. I think I, I was actually uh, watching some YouTube videos recently, and I see a lot of guys that are, they when they shoot concerts on film, they're using automated cameras. Um, mm -hmm. I think you were talking about that a little bit earlier, too. Right. And, and that, I mean, I, I don't like automation, but I, you know, I, I get why they do that because it's hard. You can't see anything. Like I can't, <laughs> I, I, I've been using, you know, my Leicas, my M6s, one of them I've had for about 16 years and I can't reliably change the ISO from probably about 6,400 to 400, not that I, or maybe 1600, I guess would be, but my point is, is it would be difficult for me without some light to do that by feel. Right. So I have some ways of working around that. I don't know. Did, do you want to go into like details of like that kind of, <laughs> or do you want to talk about like, you know, like, sort of, like you mentioned some of the contractual things like that can be. Yeah. I mean, so that, that was one, the contractual part of it. I think just, so there's two parts, right? And, and I'm not talking about necessarily you specifically, but just okay. a, any professional photographer and not working with any artist in particular, but just the idea of, you know, if, if it were possible to make a career doing this, and that may be <laughs> debatable as well, because you're, number one, it feels like you're pretty constrained on how creative you can be in capturing the show. Right. And number two, you're under all of these constraints that this guy on the other side of the barricade is shooting with his iPhone that has none of these constraints. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, those, those, are, those are things that I wrestle with for sure. I posted um, an article in Petapixel when Kodak released T-Max 3200 again right. um, a few years back. And I, I Kodak had actually sent me some of the first rolls of film to try out and i was like this would be great to make like an article about but i didn't want to like just shoot like crap around my house or something just to test the film like i wanted to do something serious so so right. i went to uh, i went to one of these local venues like i said where they have good light and it actually was a band that i did like but they aren't a metal or grunge or punk band or anything like that so one of the criticisms i got in this article was you know this film is so grainy and you know this music has it, it's not you know like in, i wouldn't even shoot like a, a hardcore punk band with something this grainy you know <laughs> and i was and, and yeah i mean i guess like yeah you probably you, I, I can't think of i don't know some sort of soft contemporary music musician like something but maybe maybe the high speed grain is not appropriate for that stuff now right. i like it but you know some people don't and that's their thing and if if your artist likes it then great if they don't then yeah like you're just taking shots for yourself and right you know i i mean there's there's nothing wrong with that either in my opinion any more than taking photos with your cell phone like there's nothing wrong with that but yeah, like if someone is contracting you to do something, the Louise Post thing uh, that I did recently, I shot Matt and Kim before the pandemic. Um, that was another requested thing. They have to like your stuff before, you know, right. before you agree to it or, you know, they have to have seen some of your stuff. Uh, otherwise, you know, they, you're probably maybe wasting, not wasting, but, you know, they're not going to use your stuff, you know, and maybe that's a problem. Maybe it's not. Uh, it depends on the agreements. But yeah, that's definitely a concern. So a lot of these guys that I know that are shooting concerts regularly, uh, my buddy Jason Nicholson, um, right. Ben Eisendrath, who I gave you uh, or who I um, 
who who gave me the contact with Louise Post, Daniel Knighton. Um, he looked great. I mean, he shot like Taylor Swift. I, I feel like that's the second time I've mentioned Taylor Swift in this interview. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my point is, is uh, oh, uh, here's a better. He he shot U2 and um, actually they published, U2 published a book with like one of his photos, like in pretty oh, prominently wow. appearing. So, so these are, these guys are like doing it for, for real. Right. And right. what I see from them is that they do cater to the artist to some degree, but they have their own thing. But they, mm-hmm. all three of these guys are shooting digital. And I think that is probably a, in this day and age, I think that that is more of an aesthetic thing than it is right. a technical thing. I just think that a lot of people don't like the, what I'm doing, frankly, like the black and white with the heavy grain and the high contrast. I think that that's like a, there are some bands that are going to like that and other bands that are going to be like, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> <laughs> And right. that's okay. and that's okay too. But yeah, you're right. Like so, at a professional level, if I, you know, yeah, I guess if someone was trying to make a a run for this, and they were they were just trying to get the attention of their favorite artists and and try to you know maybe go on tour with somebody, then yeah, I, they're gonna have to probably be more flexible. Um, my buddy Jason Jason Nicholson, he shoots color very rarely, but he shoots all black and white on Leicas and and sony alpha and and he shoots digital and film together and i think that's a really balanced way to do things because he gets to he gets to sneak the film in i guess <laughs> right. Call it that, right he gets to be because he's also giving them the grain free ultra sharp sort of sterilized right. you know, stuff too so I, I and i think i see that a lot from concert photographers that are i hesitate to say professionals sometimes because like i i think some of these guys they're not actually been making a profit on it but when i say professional i just mean in terms of like they are professionals you know right um, like they they work on this day in day out they bust their asses and and they really work hard those guys like yeah i think they're shooting film and digital um right. or, or just digital i think did the, I quick, that question? Uh, yeah. yeah yeah you did you did absolutely and i think you know the digital probably from an artist perspective you know that's it's expected i would think number one probably they appreciate the quick turnaround right because if you're you want to be able to post something on your social media hey great show last night boston thanks everybody for <laughs> showing up and showing out <laughs> that's absolutely and, and it and it is that look and i think you know like you were mentioning if if someone like jason or anyone else can can have that but also sneak in the occasional film. I think that'd be a great situation for sure. That's how I've always looked at it. When I used to, um, in my first half of my career, kind of, I was doing a lot more production stills uh, mm-hmm. for like TV commercials and this kind of thing uh, back when people cared about that. Right. Because <laughs> now it's like, because everybody's got a cell phone in their pocket. People don't really do production stills much anymore. But with the production stills, yeah, I had to get something, you know, kind of quick. So I would shoot digital and you know and that would be like published or whatever like hey you know we're shooting this here you know and then i take a little bit longer on the film and then they have the film for like sort of the longer span but honestly i gotta tell you about that turnaround point the the right. point about quick turnarounds film guys we gotta stop being so damn slow with getting our film back to people i don't right. know what people are waiting for i really don't like does it physically take longer you know like yeah like i got home from the louise post i think it was like uh midnight or one in the morning something like that the first thing I do when I got home, after I drank like a ton of water because I was dehydrated, um, <laughs> right. I load it. Um, I shot eight rolls of film, which isn't really that much. 
but because I was actually enjoying the music too. Um, she let me shoot past the three songs. So um, after, I shot real hard for the her opening. Um, I shot their, you know, the opening hard, uh, three songs hard and her three songs hard and then just kind of enjoyed myself and then just took pictures occasionally. So mm -hmm. otherwise I probably would have shot more. But anyway, I, I get home, I get my rolls of film, 35 millimeter, and I, I load them in my tanks. Mm -hmm. and and then i go and and i go to bed i wake up first thing i i do in the morning i it, i make my kids breakfast i'm like guys leave me alone for the rest of the day <laughs> you know and so right. i my film was already loaded i just had to mix my chemicals i processed within you know like an hour or something and my film you know let my film dry took a little break um and then and then and then i scanned and edited it you know and and mm -hmm. i had i actually um ben uh eisendrath he shot the um her, or her NYC show the following night and I had my photos done before he was even like shooting you know oh, wow. <laughs> yeah so yeah. I mean this crap about uh, sorry like, I shouldn't <laughs> people, but like I mean right. that's to me that's part of being a professional with film is not waiting five weeks to process your film you know like you you have to compete with the digital folks um my wife and I laugh sometimes because we'll do like something uh, you know, wedding or family photos or that kind of thing. And I'll get my film photos to the client before she can get her digital done. And it's because, yeah, I have all these mechanical processes going on, but I have, I'm shooting fewer photos. Right. Um, so I don't have as much to call through. Like I don't have, you know, 50 versions of the same shot that I have to decide, well, which one of these do I want to, you know? And then when it comes to editing and some digital photographers, I'm sure have, uh, and I hate to say, like, you know, I hate to call people digital photographers. I think a lot of people are like hybrid photographers nowadays, but I, I only shoot film. Right. But, so that's just how I look at it. But I don't mean any offense to anybody. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I think a digital photographer, you know, could have a good workflow too. But for me, like, I have a very standard, like, process and, like, how I want things to look. And it's a straight path for me. So I can work very quickly. And I, I've streamlined... Uh, my processing and all these things to make me fast and to make me uh, so I can do a large volume of photos very quickly. Um, right. And I think that that's something that in terms of the difference between like a professional and the hobbyist, I think is the hobbyist is taking their time on everything. Right. Which, you know, it's fine because that's how you learn. But I'm um, but but if you're but if you're doing concerts, you're right. Um, you need to you need to turn your photos around because the person that gives the artist the cell phone photo, the artist is going to repost the cell phone photo before yours just because they got it first, not because it looked right. better. Right, <laughs> right. Well, one one last music question that has nothing to do with photography. Just what do you like to listen to? Is it oh, metal, cool. grunge? <laughs> Um, I'm I'm well, a '90s kid. Yeah, that, no, I'm I yeah I'm a, I'm a '90s kid. So definitely like uh, grunge and alternative were a big thing for me. You know, I loved Veruca Salt. Um, I love you know that. I mean, I guess people don't really call them grunge. I found apparently they're like post grunge or you know some <laughs> splinter category. But I, I love all that stuff. I lo I love guitar driven rock basically. Mm -hmm. And um, I I guess I have to. I have to say, probably near and dear to me is just Britpop. I, I love Britpop. I love The Cure, Morrissey, The Smiths, Blur, okay. like all that kind of stuff. So Yeah. All right. Well, good deal. And the point you were making just before that is a good, another good segue, because I wanted to ask you a few, It you know, that's the, for sure, I think you have to have 
as a professional, uh, all of the points you made made perfect sense to me. I mean, if you, especially with a paying client, you know, you don't want to let that sit around. <laughs> no. You, you got to get it turned around. You got to get it, it delivered and you got to have your process down so that it, it enables you to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mentioned your blog earlier and you always have good advice in there and and occasionally some of the things you'll write about jump out at me just because it is different than some of the things that that the hobbyist photographer probably does do and so i thought i would ask you about a few of these topics that come up from time to time and kind of get (laughs) your your professional perspective on it and and that first one was a good one about getting the work turned around for sure One of the things that came up, well, it always comes up, but it's about the cost of film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you read the forums or whatever, there's always different takes. Well, I'm going to have to stop shooting as much film or, you know, at least for my color, I'm going to do that in digital or just there's just all sorts of different takes that people have about how they're going to react to the price of film and you've you've actually posted a couple of articles on this at least a couple of articles on this (laughs) subject one was about you know ways for people to purchase film as cheaply as possible you know buying in bulk if you can get a discount or using uh browser add-ins and these sorts of things but but the other article i had in mind was maybe a little bit less intuitive for some people but it was to buy it was to shoot more (laughs) so talk about that a little bit if you don't mind yeah yeah i you know when it comes to my when it comes to my blog i i a lot of a lot of my sort of um motivation for writing some of my blog is interacting with people in forums i've always enjoyed like uh participating in photography forums that's how i i learned a lot of stuff like early early on um was just you know uh, talking to folks because I didn't have access to local photographers that were doing the things that I wanted to do. And so like, it's great uh, having an online community that are trying to do some of the things that we're doing. And I, and I think that's, what's so damn cool about the film community is, um, you know, it's so diverse and people are so opinionated and, and, and a lot of people have a lot more experience with things than, than, than maybe realize, you know, so, um, <clears throat> so you can learn a lot. The thing that drives me crazy though, and so I guess what I was getting at with the with social media and forums and that kind of thing is what I post on my blog a lot is like sort of my expanded thoughts and some of my reactions to what I see people talking about in the forums and one of the things like you said is a hot topic has always has been the cost of film since the pandemic particularly Um, now Kodak said that they 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 said like at the before the pandemic even happened um, before all these, you know, before su- the word supply chain became part of the common lexicon, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> before before all that, they said like we're going to have to raise our prices because there's a resurgence in popularity of film, and we need to refresh our gear, you know, essentially. Um, so we're going to slowly ratchet up prices. So I, I think a lot of people, I think there's like some conspiracy theories, and I, you know, I get real frustrated with comments about you know price gouging and this kind of thing when people who are making these comments, you know, they don't have any business experience. I don't have any real business experience. I don't know one way or the other if we're being price gouged on the film, but right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the side of, 
these people, there are people behind these businesses. And I've had the fortune of interacting with um, some of the folks at Kodak and, and they are real people who shoot film. Like they're right. film photographers too. One of my good buddies, you know, he, he's a film photographer and he works for Kodak, you know? So he, it's not in his interest to price gouge anybody. <laughs> right. So I'm, I try to look at it in a positive light in terms of that. Now, in terms of like shooting more film instead of less film because it's expensive, I, you know, I think the, the more that pe people cut back on, on shooting film, the worse they're going to be at it. Like it's not, maybe, maybe I'm a shitty photographer or something, but like when I, when I don't shoot for a long period of time and then I get back to it. Yeah. I guess it's like, you know, the old saying of riding a bike and, like oh you can hop right back on and like it's almost like you never like, but it's not for me it's not really been like that you know like i've been processing i've been doing stuff for many years over 20 years and if i if i stop for a long time or i go somewhere and i don't take a lot of photos of it i don't get great photos back like if if i if i go to a concert and shoot you know sometimes i hear people like oh i went to a concert i shot you know a couple rolls of this film or whatever and like what is, what are you going to do with a couple of rolls of film i feel embarrassed having only shot eight the other night like <laughs> i mean i maybe i'm a bad photographer and i need to take that many rolls to get good shots but i gave each band 50 50 odd shots out of you know what's that like three 300 shots or something. i don't yeah. know yeah. so you know i don't think that's a bad ratio but my point is is that you're not gonna like you need to shoot more i, I understand cost is cost and I, I don't mean to sound like marie antoinette and let them eat cake or anything like that <laughs> I, i'm certainly not wealthy or anything either right um part of the reason i think i mentioned uh, with doing business doing this as a business is because i just wanted to pay for my film right um so I, I get that. Like if like there are tangible costs to things. I'm I'm certainly not trying to disrespect anybody's finances, but I, I will say that you're not gonna improve yourself and you're not gonna get good work if you don't shoot an adequate amount of film. You know? Right. Like I and so like so then what happens I think is people get back a bunch of shots they don't like and then they feel like they wasted all their money and time. And I don't want anybody to feel that way. I want people to be excited. Even a friend of mine who I think has a better, better financial situation than I do, he was complaining about the cost of film the other day. I'm like, you know, the reason that you're getting, you know, like you send stuff off to the lab and you get a bunch of bad stuff back is because you're not shooting it often enough to know it. You like, you know, like you got to shoot it to get the good shots. So I don't right. know. I, I don't know if that that seems maybe <laughs> like circular logic. I don't know, like if that makes sense. But I, that's how I see it. I mean. I, like I said, it's it's not a financial, you do your best to, to afford what you can, but I think like if your solution is like, I'm going to shoot less film, I think we're probably going to see, I mean, unless you're like a large format guy and you like, you know, just rock those like single shots, you know, like that's not me. Like I need 36 shots to, to find something, <laughs> you know? So like I said, maybe I'm just a bad photographer, but I, I, I really think most people are maybe more in my boat. And like, you're like, especially if you're covering, you know, like, yeah, if you're taking landscapes on large format, then yeah, like you probably don't need a whole lot of sheets because you, most of your work is in the deliberation and the planning, right? But like right. if you if you're like me and you're you know and you're shooting your kids particularly kids I mean how can you get a good shot of kids if you're only gonna take one or two photos right <laughs> because they're right. going like crazy like if like if you're if you're shooting documentary style stuff of people you need to shoot a lot 
and shooting less is only going to like drift you farther away, I think, from getting what you want. So, well, and I, I would echo that. I mean, that's certainly been my experience whenever, and, and, and I don't shoot, I don't suspect nearly as much as you do, but definitely, I think even just over the last few years, I think when I went through waves where I was shooting, you know, a couple of rolls every weekend at the very least versus shooting a roll every two months. I mean, the <laughs> result. The, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. I mean, those results are going to be much better. Yeah. Um, you know, when you are shooting frequently. But the the other part of it is just that if we're not buying film, they're going to stop making it. Yeah. Well, that's that's definitely, you know, like sort of the, the underlying thing that's going on behind all this, too. I agree. Like part of the reason, you know, I mean, I, I don't shoot expired film. I don't screw around um i don't uh like i appreciate that people are making rebranded film and making it exciting and you know doing things like you know adding rainbows to it or whatever <laughs> you know like right. I, I appreciate people and then rebranding you know they buy some fuji stock and then add some rainbows and sell it as something you know like <laughs> right. i i think that's great that you know people that there's a market and people are doing creative things like that but for me i don't buy i buy very reliable stuff and my my goal is you know like if Sometimes people, uh, we were talking about traveling with film uh, recently. I, right. I see people ask, um, you know, well, if you're about to go through the X-ray and you've got, you know, like half a roll of film left in your camera, what do you do? I'm like, you rewind it and keep going. Like, I don't care about half the roll of film that I'm losing a few bucks on. What I care about is the shots I already took. Right. And I also care about buying that roll of film and supporting Kodak or Ilford or Fuji or whoever, you know, whoever made it. Like, I, I think... I, there's like this like sort of um frugality i think that is like sort of self-detrimental you know right and, and again I, I i i feel like when i say these things and people think oh well he's just well kodak sends him film to shoot and, <laughs> you know and, and he, people pay him to shoot so he doesn't know what the, but i but the thing is the fact of the matter is is that the more that i pay for my film mm -hmm. i i can't just keep ratcheting my prices up for people like right. i i don't know what people think but like for a, wet, um, a wedding or whatever like i can't just keep raising my prices and you know i'm losing money the more i'm paying for the film so I, you know it's not i'm not people aren't alone i'm not speaking from some palatial mansion where we just <laughs> you know i'm swimming in film like scrooge mcduck something in money you know it's not like that at all like it's it's definitely a real problem for me too but i don't think that the solution is to pull back because like you said you're going to hurt the companies that are doing this for us. I mean, they don't, I mean, who would have thought in 20, 2023, we'd still have as much access to as much film as we do. Right. I mean, so I just think it's cool. And I think, you know, we need to support that if we want to keep it going. Like I, I have two small kids and they're not like super interested in photography right now, but I'm going to die one of these days and they're going to have a whole bunch of Leicas to <laughs> deal with. <laughs> so I'd like to think that they can at least load them up and do something with them, you know, even if it's just, you know, what, what was dad doing all that time? You know, I mean, right. I, it's important to me, the future of film. So. Right. Definitely. And, and you mentioned traveling and that was something that I wanted to ask you about, because that is a question that gets brought up a good bit you know what and, and there are diff different opinions you know just take your chances let them scan it ask for a hand check just all of the and you mentioned what do i do if i've got half a roll exposed and all that so what what is 
you you were in Paris recently with mm -hmm. some film and kind of what did you do then and kind of what is your general strategy to traveling with film? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a globe trotter by any means, but I, I do I do travel out of the country every uh, couple of years, and um, I certainly fly around the United States from time to time. And I tell you, going through security in the United States um, is often very easy. So I don't. I, I you see a lot of people say, "Well, I don't hand check my film because it's," or "I don't ask for hand check for my film because the signs all say 800 ISO or lower are fine." And I think that's probably a uh, rule of thumb, more or less, because, I mean, we all know the exposure triangle. We all know that if you have more light, then you need to stop down. Or if you have less light, then you need to raise your ISO. Like, so it's the same thing with x-rays. Again, not a scientific understanding, but I don't <laughs> think you have to be a scientist to understand it. X-rays are a form of radiation, so is light. Um, the more x-rays that penetrate your film, you know, the more exposure you're going to get. The, the security theater, or the you know, theater of security, is that we don't know how much X-rays our film is being hit with, or for how long. So we don't know what we don't how we can't calculate what the exposure is. So when someone tells me uh, anything below 800 is fine, you don't know that because you don't know what the other side of that equation is. Okay. Right. <laughs> so. I, I want to respect uh, airport security. I'm certainly not saying that they're they're trying to pull one over on us or anything like that. But I am yeah. trying to say that I think it's a rule of thumb, and in right. most cases, it's probably fine. Like I, I've even I've been through when I fly to the Dominican Republic, uh, which is where I got married, and we've been on vacation a few times. When I've been to the Dominican Republic at the the Punta Cana airport, they always consistently refuse me a hand check, <laughs> and I, um, as we mentioned, I I shoot a lot of uh, 3200 speed film i push it to 6400 so if anything's going to get damaged by x-rays i'm going to be the guy that finds it right right and the punta cana airport uh, my 3200 pushed to 6400 goes through just fine yeah <laughs> so i you know so i'm i'm certainly not trying to say that in every instance your film is going to be damaged but you mentioned my paris trips and um i did leave just sort of because the shots were kind of disposable, I was like doing those typical like photos through the airplane window of the wing. Right. Um, I was on board, and um, so I let those pass through the X-ray machine, and I left them in my like. I left that it was a roll of Tri-X. I left in my Leica, and the film was damaged as hell. Like I mean, mm -hmm. it was completely unusable. So, and that was just one pass, one, right. one pass through an X-ray. So my point is, is I I'm very religious about asking for a hand check. I try not to panic. My wife's over here listening to me. Um, she's definitely heard me panic before. <laughs> but I try not. I, I try not to panic if security says no. We're gonna we're gonna have to scan it. Um, because you know, the, for me, it's just all about minimizing the number of scans. Mm -hmm. And certainly, at a professional capacity, you know, uh, we shot a wedding in the, the Dominican Republic a few years back, and you know, you can't just tell your client, "Oh, well, uh, sorry, all the film is ruined from X-ray damage." Like. You know, right. it's like, well, well, then why didn't you take care of that? You know, and, and you think about all these guys that were, you know, uh, National Geographic photographers and these kind of folks that were really prolifically traveling, shooting film all over the world. They weren't just, well, we'll let it pass through the the security and see what happens. You know, right. like, like this was critical work that they were doing and people still do. And so, I, you know, I don't think we should have a casual approach to that. And even hobbyists, that film 
represents an investment in your money and your time, don't screw it up by just not, you know, asking for a hand check. <laughs> right. Um, and be, but, cur be courteous, you know, just if you can get there early and just all of the, you know, just common sense sort of things. Mm -hmm. they're, they're there to do a job as well. And they're going to be more inclined to do that for you if you're not making their life difficult, for sure, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah. Um, and then that goes, you know, just with concert photography, the TSA, like every kind of photography where you're not, you know, <laughs> shooting like landscapes or like macro shots that don't involve other people, I guess. I think a lot of times photographers, we feel sort of entitled and emboldened by what we're doing. And we forget that there's a person on the other end of that. Like street photography is a big topic for this. Right. Um, you know, but to the topic of your show too, um, with music, the networking, being polite to people, being respectful of people's time, understanding that you're not the only one trying to get something done here. You know, all that stuff is like super important. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and to be honest, that's something that I've had to learn because when I was younger, gigs were more or less handed to me, you know, mm -hmm. um, because of the environment that I was in. And so I didn't really have to like schmooze, I guess. <laughs> not, not, not I'm saying you have to schmooze to get good photos, but you know, concerts or anything like that, but you do have to, you do have to be respectful. Like this thing with, we were talking about, still talking about Louise Post um, from Veruca Salt. Um, she actually um, has postponed the tour due to illness. Mm. Um, so I, she has not yet approved my, the photos I took. And, you know, all these guys with their cell phone photos, they just post them online without permission and, and, <laughs> and they get to post them. I can't share my photos of the professionalism. It's a professional right. courtesy. You know, she, she wants to control what her image is and I'm happy yeah. to help her do that. So, you know, it's frustrating on my end, but it's what's much more important is the relationship you have with people. And, right. and that, that goes anywhere from dealing with a famous musician to the guy at the PSA that you know, is telling you, no, nope, we're not going to, we're not going to give you a hand shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Right. Well, you, you have mentioned like a couple of times and, and certainly I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about that. Oh. I think, I think a few people maybe are either intimidated by range finders or they just don't jail with it. I don't, I don't know what kind of, as a range finder shooter kind of give us your perspective what what do you like about uh, either like us specifically or range finders in general maybe size weight mm -hmm. I, I mean I, I feel like there probably is a little bit of a learning curve but kind of kind of tell us your range finder thoughts yeah I you know I think a lot of people associate me with like and range finder stuff recently but I think part of that has to do with just the popularity of that brand in particular. But I, the first cameras that I fell in love with, I mentioned the girl that photographed me back in high school that kind of turned me on to like 35 millimeter black and white photography. She right. was shooting on a Pentax K1000. So I was obsessed with K1000 for a while. I, I think I, I had probably, um, I think I had six or eight K1000s just <laughs> myself. Like when I was kind of confusing my collecting with photography for a while there. But I was like, like flipping them actually. So it was like the silly like thing that I was doing in my twenties. Actually, I guess I wasn't even 20 yet. I love Pentax. I love SLRs. I, I've moved to Nikon. I, so I, I mainly for my paid work, I mainly every once in a while I shift to something else, but mainly shoot Nikon and Leica. 
Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I definitely get the SLR thing too. But yeah, I, I love the Leica brand, but I also just love rangefinders. And if there were if some there were somebody else making <laughs> high high quality <laughs> professional rangefinders today, like I'd be happy to try out their stuff too. And I don't really include, unfortunately, um, Voigtlander uh, in that boat. <laughs> um, I did go down that path, and um, I right. did eventually get rid of my uh, my Voigtlander. But so the, I think rangefinders are challenging for people. I I don't know if it's everybody, but like I, you know, you start class with a 35 millimeter SLR, and so if you start with an SLR, I think it is intimidating to go to a system where it's like. I'm not looking through the lens. You know, if I put my finger in the wrong spot, I can see my finger through, you know. Um, right. it, it's just a much more simple way of doing things. And it seems antiquated. And and I think it's a little bit scary. And I get that. And my wife, actually, it's funny. She fully in, supports my like a habit. But she um, hates, she, or I shouldn't say hates, but she she can't use the rangefinder. Like, she can't see it. <laughs> and I right. think, and I, I do hear that from some people. Like, they, they have trouble actually just seeing the rangefinder patch. So, I mean, if you're in that boat, then I'm certainly not going to try to change your mind. But I think, you know, a lot of times people try to, I guess what I'm getting at is I think a lot of SLR, people that start with an SLR, or mm -hmm. even a mirrorless, something where you're seeing through the taking lens, or, or twin lens or anything like that. Uh, well, I guess twin lens isn't through the taking lens, but something, you know, that's reflexive. Right. Um, I think, you know, we tend to treat the experience of focusing and shooting through a rangefinder like that. So, like, I see people forgetting about parallax correction when they're shooting on a rangefinder. I see people, like, trying to get too close to things. Um, I see people, like, not pre-focusing. A lot of SLR shooters, I don't think, like, do any kind of pre- or zone focusing. You know, when I'm shooting, like, at a... Like concerts are pretty easy in terms of focus because like their musicians are hitting various marks for the most part. But when I'm shooting a uh, a wedding reception, I've just got people just chaotically dancing all over the place, and so you really have to rely on like understanding distance. Like you have to be able to like look at a scene and say that's five feet away, that's three feet away, that's ten feet away, and you have to dial that in on your lens before you start focusing. Now, I, you know, I, I posted a blog about the, you know, rangefinder focusing techniques and a lot of people were like, oh, well, these are SLR. These could be for SLR too. And I was like, yeah, they, they can be. But I just think a lot of people don't use them. Right. I, maybe, maybe that's just my personal experience, but that's my thing. I don't know. What do you think? Because you, because you shoot SLR, right? Like you're more an SLR guy. Yeah. So for sure grew up. I mean, I had a Canon AE1 way back in the day. <laughs> which is an SLR, of course. But when I got into photography as a hobby, digitally, definitely SLRs. These days, let's see, I actually have a K1000 that I like to take out and shoot. Nice. I, I have a Hasselblad, also an SLR, I guess. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely, that is definitely my comfort zone, and I think it's a crutch. Uh, that part of the reason for asking, I think one of your blog posts, and it was probably a little bit of tongue in cheek, but I think you mentioned your M6 TTL was the best camera ever made. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, I, I guess I did leave that out. I guess that's the other reason why people associate me with like some range trainers, right? Yeah, well, the thing is, I, I guess the thing, I, it, it was a tongue-in-cheek uh, article. Some people uh, right. sort of took that the wrong way, but I was kind of making fun of the Leica community and right. how, you know, they think everything that they have is the absolute best thing. <laughs> but, right. I mean, but the, I, I do, uh, you know, I shot Thrill Hill Call, um, 
Matt and Kim, Louise Post, like I shot these people on my M6 and um, I do love that camera. It's become very trendy to like that camera in the last several years, but I guarantee you that when I purchased it, I actually, the first one I bought was actually pretty cheap as M6s go now uh, because it was kind of, it was looked down upon actually because it's not made of brass and various other silly it's right. You know, it wasn't made in Wetzler. It was made in Solms, like, you know, <laughs> like you know, silly Leica things, right? But yeah, I do love that camera. Um, and the thing, so I think with, uh, I guess, why put up with this, like, you know, why indoctrinate people to the rangefinder when the SLR seems easier to use? Like, why even make that mm -hmm. effort? Well, I do think that rangefinders are actually as easier or easier in some situations to use than SLRs. Uh, low light is a great example of that. But I understand that that maybe comes with a little bit of training or prep. But I think the thing with rangefinders is, is like, you kind of just have to accept, you have to, it has to be your philosophy, right? Like, rangefinders kind of define what you can and can't shoot and almost how you can shoot them based on the design of the camera. You, like I said, you, you know, typically you're not going to do macros or, you know, close up shots. Like, you're, you're going to be at least three feet away from your subject. You're going to, people tend to shoot with wide angle lenses. With range renders i use telephoto too but that's another thing you know it kind it limits the number of lenses you can use like the range of the lenses um typically you're only going to be shooting between 35 and 135 because that's all you have like frame lines or base length to to focus and you're only going to be shooting prime lenses you're not going to be shooting zoom you're not going to be shooting with automation unless there's some amount of automation digital like the m's and um the m7 so there, it's just a it there. There's a sort of a, a set of principles that they follow, and I really like that because those are the same principles that I pretty much follow with SLRs anyway. And so it was like, here's a camera that's built for what I like to do best. And so I, I that's why I think I started to go after rangefinders and Leica in particular, is I just feel I, I feel very strongly. I think it's so cool that they're still making film cameras. I love Nikon, but they're not. They, right. It's a failed business model. I mean, that's uh, people talk about. Oh, it's cool how cheap this is. Like, I got this at the thrift store for five dollars. The K one thousand is a great example of that. I think the K one thousand is a highly underrated camera. I think they the only reason why it's so cheap is because there's so many of them. Like, I think it's a very <laughs> high quality camera, right? Right. Um, great results, but but it it's it's cheap because it's available now i but i i'm not going to hold it against leica for charging a lot of money and actually <laughs> and you know having a good enough business model to sustain what they were doing where everybody else did not you know pentax didn't canon right. did icon did you know none of them are making cameras anymore so or film cameras anymore so i don't know i mean maybe to, 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 to me like the price again it's not it's i'm again I'm veering into that Marie Antoinette <laughs> thing that I was with. Like, it's more expensive. Let's shoot more film. But right. I mean, I, I I love the sustainability of it. I like, you know, I walk into a Leica store and, um, you know, they treat me with respect. I mean, they honestly, like, if you walk in with like an icon, they'll treat you with respect. But, um, right. but I I can go there. They know they know my camera. Like, they mm -hmm. can sell me a brand new lens for it if they could afford it. You know, they can sell me accessories. They can, you know, give me technical support. Um, it's a, it's a sustain, especially, you know, again, it's the, maybe the professional versus the hobbyist. Maybe the hobbyist doesn't care about having that supply chain and that like sustained presence. But right. for me, like it, it isn't, it, it, it makes me feel better knowing that I'm buying into a brand that still exists. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, so.
and and so sort of along those lines and the m6 does seem to be whether it, yes there is the crowd who for whom it is a lifestyle thing and the people who hate the people for whom it's a lifestyle thing. And then there are people who appreciate the fine craftsmanship and the legacy and all of those things. But, you know, of all of the models that came out over, you know, 50 years, the M6 did it. it well, the M3, and then the M6 seemed mm -hmm. like the two models that kind of really resonated with people. And then, you know, a year or two ago, whenever it was that they decided, hey, we're going to put out another one, they decided to go with, you know, a reboot of the M6, mm -hmm. which, you know, just in terms of news for the film community, I, I was excited whether I ever own one or not. You know, it's just exciting to hear, hey, somebody cares enough about film photography that they're going to put out another camera. But it was that specific camera, the M, uh, the M6, you know, a, 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 and I don't know enough about it the the technical specs to speak to how close it is to the original but kind of what were what was your thoughts just in general about that news oh yeah i you know i actually um there there had been some rumblings about leica releasing another film camera in the forums and that kind of thing and so i i got together with uh dan tamarkin and jason nicholson um, you can see my 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 circle of friends is pretty tight. I keep talking <laughs> the same names here, but both great guys, and we you know kind of had some predictions as to what the new film camera was going to be, and none of us predicted this. I guess in retrospect, it actually makes a lot of sense um, because mm -hmm. the new M6 is actually just built on the same platform as the MA and the MP. So from a practical standpoint, it makes a lot of sense since it's almost, you know, it's almost just a, a rebrand more than it is a, a fully different model. I, I shouldn't even say almost. That's pretty much what it is. So in that vein, I was a little bit disappointed because what I was really hoping for is that they would release something more affordable, like more affordable. They say it's affordable. <laughs> <But> it's, <laughs> right. it's still not affordable for most people. So um, it's not affordable for me. But yeah, I mean, so I was disappointed in that regard, and I was also disappointed in that it's not—it's not a new camera. It's—it's it's really an MP with an M6 insignia on it. But I am excited for the reasons that you say, and I agree. Uh, just hey, someone's paying attention to us. They're looking at—they're looking at their sales. They're looking at their numbers, and they're saying, "Hey, like these pe this is this is a market here. This is a market that we care about, and we're going to put a product out for it." You know, and that—that's huge. Like. You know, you can complain about, you know, you can hate Leica as much as you want. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're, they're trying in their own weird, expensive way. They're trying to cater to us, which is more than, you know, I, I think Pentax has got something in the works. They've been teasing and that sounds cool. Um, I did. I bought like one of these uh, kind of those Rita rebranded Kodak uh, H35 half frame cameras when they came out the other year. I love vintage stuff. I actually, I have like, there's some amount of antique collecting going on in my house in my life. Um, <laughs> but like my my Leica, actually, I, I've kind of been embroiled in this thing about uh, buying another Leica 90 millimeter, and I I want to buy newer ones. Like I don't have an, I mean, I have an affinity for old stuff, but I think the new stuff is, you know, that's gonna help us keep moving forward with film. Um, right. People ask like. 
well, why, why do we need another M6? Like, why do we need another film camera? Like, there's like, you know, a stockpile of film cameras that are just fine. I mean, I think the reason is just because it gets market interest and it gets market value and that, that builds repair shops. You mm-hmm. know, a lot, I, my favorite repair shop that I used for 20, over 20 years had to close down uh, last year, which has left me in a bit of a situation. A lot of the reason, a lot of, I see a lot of the reasons why people have problems with film photography today is not because there's a lack of cameras available. It's, right. it's, there's, it's a lack of working cameras that are available, <laughs> you know, um, and, and, and the resources to support working cameras, film labs and this kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah, like a, a $5,000 brand new Leica maybe doesn't sound like reasonable to a lot of people, but hopefully it's a little step in like in building up that ecosystem again. So, Right. Yeah, definitely. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and this was another thing that you turned me on to through reading your blog was the Kodak darkroom data guide. (laughs) And you've talked a little bit about developing and I've, I was already home developing. I have, so I use uh, my products is my go-to and um, I learned with D76 and used that for a long time. I have switched to HC 110 just because I prefer the liquid over the powder. (laughs) Um, but, but just, you know, and even though this data guide is a few years old, obviously <laughs> it references a lot of things that no longer exist and the formula for HC 110 itself has changed in the interim as well. But I, but I still go by, you know, kind of the process that it laid out in the data guide. So appreciate that recommendation, but yeah, may, maybe just talk and, and and I suspect it's going to be similar to some of the other stuff you've talked about as a professional, you've got, you need consistency. You need to be able to turn the work around quickly. Mm-hmm. You need predictable results. So talk about your film and chemistry that you kind of settled in on and how you got to that point and kind of just about developing your own film in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I, I, I need, I need a published book of things I need to know from the people <laughs> that, you know, it's like, right. you're literally going by the book. I, as much as I think, you know, respect like the massive development chart and the volumes upon volumes of like internet forums that have been dedicated to all the stuff that's covered in the simple Kodak Darkroom data guide, most of the stuff that you need to learn the process effectively is in that data guide. It is old. I wish that Kodak, and I actually had mentioned that to one of the guys at Kodak. I was like, can we read? Can you guys like? published a new version of this like why isn't this like you're still making film right so why aren't you telling anyone how to use it like i like i really don't understand you know i i guess it's more complicated than that for them from a business perspective but but i don't understand that um and the black and white darkroom data guide that i have i forgot which edition it is um i don't have that in front of me but i think it's from like i want to say like 97 or something like that i think (laughs) that's the latest copy you know, it's it's pretty outdated, but you're right. A lot of this, it does have a lot of stuff in it that is no longer available. Products that are no longer available, but all the techniques, all the all the, you know, they have this great section on troubleshooting. Like, is your negative too dense? Is it too thin? You know, like, is is that because you overexposed it, or is it because you underdeveloped it, or 
you know, like it, it seems like basic stuff, right? But, right. Um, but I don't, I think a lot of people were educated um, off internet forums and YouTube videos instead of like proper uh, referenced direct from the source kind of knowledge, you know, like you wouldn't go to school and like, and, and the teacher just turns on a YouTube channel for you to, to learn, uh, you know, the history of whatever, <laughs> right? I mean, like YouTube is great. I watch YouTube all the time. But when I want to when I want to learn something and know that I'm getting a fact and not like someone's opinion or you know somewhat you know when I want to when I want to learn a fact I pick up a book and right. I pick up a book from a um, authority figure and who's a better authority figure on processing film than Kodak, Kilfer right. uh, and Fuji you know so and honestly like. I talk a lot about Kodak and I use a lot of Kodak products, but I, I you know, I, I love Ilford too. Fuji, you know, has kind of fallen back in like their commitment to film, it seems like. But, um, you know, I, I haven't found a similar book by Ilford, but, you know, if someone, maybe someone listening could recommend something, I, like I'd, I'd be interested in that too. Like the, the bottom line for me is, is, yeah, just having a book that like when I'm processing my film, I can open it up because I'm having a, a problem or or a senior moment or you know <laughs> whatever I just I just need something to reference and I need to not like go post a question on Facebook or Instagram and hope that someone who can actually support what they're saying doesn't is, is going to give me an answer in, in a relevant amount of time you know like I need a book and I think everybody needs that book right that's the best that we've got I think right now do I think it's the absolute best yeah I guess it's not but um, I just don't think there's anything else out there. <laughs> Um, which is sad, but yeah, I highly recommend it. I could talk like forever about it. I sometimes I just sit down and just read the black and white <laughs> data guide for kicks because you, you even if you're reading about like outdated, um, obsolete product, there's something in there that you're gonna learn that you didn't know before. So, right. Well, the the whole back half is about it isn't about the film; it's about the papers, right? And none of that yeah. exists anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, the copy that I have um, is pretty late, and so they don't go into the papers much detail. But like some of the older, co I do have some older copies of it too. And the older copies, they even give you like samples of the paper. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it's like really, it's it's neat. They so they have like a sample image, and they print the same image on different types of paper to show you like the different, you know, and yeah, maybe those papers don't exist anymore. But mm -hmm. you can begin to understand the relationship if you're doing like gallery work you know the difference between why am i printing on fiber instead of you know glossy rc you know like you know right. just understanding those relationships you're not going to get that from watching videos and looking at internet screens like you have to have it in hand so right. uh, yeah kodak please you know bring us another <laughs> data guide there's that's a color data guide too but obviously that's completely inapplicable at this point so right right well, this has been great, Johnny, and I really do appreciate, again, you taking some time out to chat with me about all of these things. Uh, what, how, how, you know, we've, we've mentioned your blog. How can people follow along and get in touch and see what all you've been up to and check uh, out some of your, your writing? Well, I, I should definitely start by saying that I, I really appreciate you reaching out to me, and um, I, I get really nervous with speaking. I probably sound like a lunatic sometimes i'm sorry <laughs> hopefully something up here was of some use to somebody um, great <laughs> i so maybe this will open me up to, to doing some more podcast action but um yeah I, I writing is my main thing like i like to write because i can be very deliberate about what i say i you know when i when i'm speaking in person i think i'm jumping all over the place and probably not making a clear case for some of the things i think 
but when I write, I have the time to sit there and deliberate. And like, if you if you read my blog, uh, I, what's it called? Thoughts and Photography of Johnny Martyr. I'm sure you'll post the address. Yeah. I, I um, you know, anything that I put in that blog, I didn't just, you know, I didn't just post that so that I would get my stats for the week or whatever. I, you know, and a lot of times weeks will go by and I don't post, months will go by and I don't post because I only post when I've got uh, what I think is a clearly coherent and researched thing to say, I'm not going to tell you, hey, I bought this, you know, camera at a pawn shop yesterday and I took some pictures and here they are. None of them are very good and they don't, <laughs> and, and the camera's broken. Like I, like i know some people like to, to read those kinds of things and it's probably work you know but what i try to do is i'm trying to present researched stuff so that i'm providing information like it like um i think we talked about it earlier but it's really important for me for people shooting film to have a good experience shooting film to not have unhappy surprises when they when they process it when they get their images back um, so I'm just I, I work my hardest to present my honest um, opinions and, and 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 try to back them up with right. facts. And if some of my opinions I can't back up with facts, <laughs> <laughs> but right. any, but anything I can support, uh, I put it in my blog. So right. um, definitely my blog is a place to go. But you're not going to get the you're not going to get the weekly hit that you know like if you follow like. Uh, 35 MC that you know they post constantly. Cosmo photo. They they're they got those guys are prolific writers and journalists, and and I applaud them for it. Unfortunately, that's not <laughs> the speed I'm at. So, but um, right. yeah, I, I try to post to Instagram and Facebook. Um, I I have a Threads account, but I have not used it yet. I'm not sure that I will. Um, I don't. I'm not really a big fan of Twitter, but I'm on there. If 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 you search me, you'll find stuff. And honestly, like. You don't have to look. If anybody's listening, you don't have to look for me. You know, just look for the things that you're interested in learning about. You know, and you'll and you'll find the people that are that'll help you. You know, maybe it'll right. be me, maybe it'll be someone else, but you know, um, right. that's my opinion. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, Johnny, and and thank you again. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank thank thanks so much, Billy. I, uh, this has been fun. <laughs> I want to thank Johnny Martyr again for taking some time to chat with me about music and photography and his approach as a professional photographer working with film. Please do check out the show notes for his links. Our theme song, Timeless, is by Mike Gutterman. Check out mikegutterman.bandcamp.com for all the music that Mike makes available for content creators. You can get in touch with Sunny16 at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And as John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being. <laughs>